Article 3. The War in Ukraine. What Should We Think? By Pastor Reed Benson. For the first time in 80 years, Europe has on its hands a war involving large countries, one of which has an enormous stockpile of nuclear weapons. For this and other reasons, everyone is a little worried about what it might mean for Europe and the rest of the world. As Americans, though, what should we think? With whom should we be sympathetic? Or should we be largely indifferent? What are the real origins of this war, and what is really at stake? A look at the map. The perfect place to start is to examine a map of Europe and Asia, noting its physical features. North-South rivers tie Russia and Ukraine together, and always have. This critical fact means that this border conflict is indistinct, because the borders between these two nations have been fluid for a long time. The Dnieper River is essential to both nations and is really the heartland of both Russia and Ukraine. Next, flat plains also bind them together. There is no obvious natural borders that many countries enjoy. Finally, eastern Ukraine, the area where the fighting is taking place right now, is exceptionally fertile and mineral rich. Some of the best farmland in the world is where the war is raging. Additionally, under that, rich loam, abundant supplies of coal and natural gas await easy extraction. Tangled Medieval History The Viking Rus, who unified the region of the Dnieper River in the 900s, has the first real bearing on this story. The two great cities of this nation were Kiev and Novograd, respectively in the south and the north. The former in what is now Ukraine and the latter in what is now Russia. In those early times, this was all one kingdom. Vladimir the Great was prince of both Kiev and Novograd and accepted Orthodox Christianity in 988. This event was the origin of what most historians would call Russia. Unfortunately, the cruel Mongols conquered much of Russia in the 1200s. Kiev fell under their dominion, and the Christian Orthodox Patriarch, whose center of authority had been in this city, fled north to survive. This severed the southern region away from Russia, and isolated the northern region from the rest of Europe. In time, the Orthodox Christian Patriarch settled in a new city in the north that is known today as Moscow. By the 1600s and 1700s, the northern region centered at Moscow, called Russia, had grown in population, power, and prestige, and had pushed the Mongols out of Eastern Europe. Peter the Great and Catherine the Great were determined to bring the southern region, what we now call Ukraine, back into their growing empire. From their point of view, it was taken from them unjustly when the Mongols came. The lands east of the Dnieper River was successfully absorbed into the Russian Emperor. Poland claimed that which was west of the river. No Ukrainian state had yet existed, but a distinct Ukrainian culture and identity were emerging by the late 1700s. People of this culture belonged to either the Russian Empire, the Grand Duchy of Poland, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Nonetheless, a unique Ukrainian identity was forming. Many of these Ukrainians were Roman Catholic not Orthodox. Thus, when the Russian Empire attempted to absorb them and Russianize them in both language and religion, they resisted. They did not want to be Orthodox. 
and they preferred to keep their Ukrainian dialect rather than using the Russian dialect. In 1793, Russia gained control of western Ukraine and intensified its policy of Russification, but the results were decidedly mixed. 20th century history. World War I had a dramatic impact on the political stability of Eastern Europe. In 1917, Russia dropped out of the war at great cost. The Bolshevik communists under Lenin and Trotsky seized control of Russia and soon gained control of all of Ukraine at the end of their brutal civil war in 1922. Steadily, the communists tightened their grip on all of the regions that were once part of the old Russian Romanov Empire, including Ukraine. Joseph Stalin succeeded to power as an absolute dictator and began his brutal policy of forced industrialization in the early 1930s. Collectivization of Russian agriculture resulted in mass famine in Ukraine. The tales of suffering match any horror you might have heard. For example, workers in the harvest season were thoroughly searched and many were executed for stealing a single grain of wheat in a desperate attempt to alleviate their starvation. When the process of collectivization was completed, millions of Ukrainians had starved. Millions more had been sent to gulags in Siberia, and the survivors were numb with shock. Stalin's Soviet government created this dystopian, catastrophic, now called the Holodomor. What bears remembering is this singular fact. Stalin used the Red Army to accomplish these goals, and the vast bulk of Red Army soldiers were Russian. Ukrainians today have grandparents who distantly recall that awful time when Russian soldiers killed their family members and made those who remained utterly miserable. This is probably the biggest reason why many Ukrainians retain a bitter distrust of all things Russian. Meanwhile, still in the 1930s, many ethnic Russians were imported to settle in eastern Ukraine and Crimea, that funny-looking peninsula that dangles into the center of the Black Sea. Their descendants still dwell there now. One might assume that the highly destructive German invasion of the region in World War II would alter the course of history, but it really did not. Most of the cities were destroyed and had to be rebuilt, but it did not alter the underlying Russian-Ukrainian ethnic tensions. Between 1922 and 1991, Ukraine was formally a republic of the Soviet Union. Ethnic Russians dominated this Soviet empire, and ethnic Ukrainians had the distasteful choice of either remaining second-class citizens or quietly pretending to be Russian to advance their place in society. In the middle of this Soviet epoch, 1954, Crimea was added to the Ukrainian Republic. It is 90% ethnic Russian. Then, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. The 15 republics became independent nations, including Ukraine. This hopeful moment, at least for Ukrainians, was the first time that ethnic Ukrainians had their own nation. Much rejoicing engulfed the ethnic Ukrainian towns. Unfortunately, within this new nation was a sizable minority of ethnic Russians, who now had a very uncertain future. Remember, 
Most Ukrainians hold serious grudges against the Russians who had been bossing them around for far too long. Geopolitical Realities First, as a nation, Ukraine is still ethnically divided. The Northwest is decidedly Ukrainian. The Southeast is mostly Russian. About 70% of the population is Ukrainian, while 30% is Russian. However, these are rough numbers and may be deceptive. There are some people who have family members on both sides of this ethnic divide. Next, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, NATO, the alliance of Western Europe and the United States, ceased to have a reason for existence. It was designed to keep the Soviet Union from conquering Western Europe, but now it had become an anachronistic alliance in search of an enemy. This remains a problem, for NATO generals and bureaucrats have decided that they would focus their energies on Russia, despite the fact that it is a significantly reduced power that poses no serious threat to Western Europe. Third, Russia still wants to be a great power. It has been for 500 years. The Russian ego will not accept the fate of being third-rate and not maintaining a dominating presence in northern Eurasia. It cannot invade Western Europe, but neither will its own sense of identity accept a reality that makes it a nation with no more power than much smaller nations like Norway or Spain. This sense of Russia's importance goes far beyond Putin. Even if he were to be removed from power, another Russian strongman would rapidly emerge and press forward the same Russian worldview. Fourth, Russia is a bit paranoid about being invaded. It's been invaded four times in 200 years. They survived all of these incursions, but three of them were devastating. In 1812, Napoleonic France marched all the way to Moscow, captured it briefly, and were only expelled at a huge cost in human suffering. In the 1850s, the British invaded Crimea. This was a small war, but added to Russia's sense of vulnerability. Of course, in 1914, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Turks joined forces and invaded Russia in the days of the last Tsar. Russia barely survived that onslaught. And of course, in 1941, Hitler's Germany nearly defeated them and was only stopped deep in the interior of Mother Russia at Stalingrad on the banks of the mighty Volga River. In all four invasions, Ukraine proved to be the doorway into Russia's heartland. Not possessing Ukraine makes Russia feel like a dagger is pointed at its navel. For Russia, control of Ukraine is a necessity, an absolute necessity. Fifth, Russia sees itself surrounded by possible enemies. From the south, all those stands, like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and so forth, are filled with non-Russian, former Soviet citizens who are Muslims. Most retain a grudge against all things Russian, and some of them are the crazy terrorist types that leave bombs hidden in Moscow's Bolshoi theater once in a while. From the east, other threats also exist, such as Japan and China. While China and Russia are cozying up to each other at the moment, that certainly has not been true in the past. Regarding Japan, 
Please recall that just over a century ago, they fought a war for control of the Pacific portions of Siberia. Japan got the best of them in that war, leaving the Russians embarrassed. From the north, Russia sees the United States loaded with American nuclear missiles, a great many of which lurk just under the polar ice cap of the Arctic Ocean, ready to fire and rain down a nuclear holocaust on Russian cities within minutes. Finally, as has been indicated from the West, Russia is extremely worried about being invaded by Europeans, as has happened four times in the last 200 years, and always through Ukraine. Sixth, another geographic and historic reality should be considered from the Ukrainian point of view. They see themselves as being continually abused by Russia. This unwanted big brother has picked on them for a long time, and they are sick of it. For good reasons, most Ukrainians would prefer to take their chances under the influence of Western European nations, pretty much any other protector. They have tasted the menu that Moscow offers them, and they want to try some other dishes. Finally, Ukraine remains a land rich with massive amounts of grain, coal, natural gas, rivers, and Black Sea access. The opportunity of economic enrichment from Ukraine has been outstanding for centuries, and remains so today. Furthermore, control of the Ukraine means control of the Black Sea and potential access to the Mediterranean Sea, a huge geopolitical win for someone. Run-up to the present war In 2013-2014, pro-Russian Ukrainian President Yanukovych tried to stop in an economic treaty with Western European nations. He then tried to create a similar treaty with Russia. This failed, though, largely because of protests from many Ukrainian people. These protests, dubbed Euro-Maiden protests, ultimately forced him from power. Pro-Western Ukrainian President Poroshenko replaced President Yanukovych. He remained in office until 2019 and was most noted during that time for his corruption. Poroshenko made billions personally and helped develop a remarkable system of money laundering that funneled untold tens of billions into the pockets of politicians in most of the capitals of Western Europe. This definitely included the United States and involved the Bidens, the Clintons, the Obamas, the Romneys, and many more well-connected American political figures who used Ukraine as a great place to trade favors for cash, leaving the Ukrainian people the losers Poroshenko's regime made his nation one of the most corrupt countries on the planet, with the possible exception of a few African dictatorships. Near the beginning of Poroshenko's rule, ethnic Russian Donetsk seceded from Ukraine. It hoped to get absorbed into Russia. Putin was reluctant to do so, fearful that this would trigger a response from the West. From 2014 until now, a low-level war was fought in the Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine, the Donbas. The big question throughout this chaotic period was simple. Was Ukraine going to be tied to the Russian economy or Western Europe's economy? The winner of this tug-of-war stood to gain a lot of money, political influence, and power. Most Ukrainians preferred the West, but Russia had too much to lose to simply let them go their way. Ukraine is quite literally Russia's front porch. Meanwhile, 
NATO began sending weapons to countries that border Ukraine on the west. The cumbersome apparatus known as NATO, staffed by European generals, was eager to find a foe. After all, with no enemy to keep things lively, their jobs and careers would soon be over. Thus, poking sticks in the cage of the Russian bear was in their own self-interest as bureaucrats who wanted to keep their lofty jobs. Early in Poroshenko's regime of 2014, Putin invaded and easily seized Crimea. This was not particularly risky, since 90% of the population was ethnic Russian, and the narrow neck of the peninsula made it easy for the Russians to defend against any Ukrainian counterattack. Residents felt liberated, and Russia still has it now. No matter what happens in the main body of Ukraine, the chances of Crimea returning to Ukraine are remote. Since he could not stop Russia from taking Crimea, nor could he counter again to remain it, regain it, Poroshenko cut off critical irrigation water from the Dnieper River to Crimea in 2014. He hoped this would punish the Russians. It seemed to have little effect. However, it did create an incentive for Putin to invade more of Ukraine to restore the flow of water. This much was accomplished in 2022. Before the 2021 invasion, tensions simmered during the Trump administration. President Trump essentially told Putin that if Putin stayed out of Ukraine, the United States would not get involved. Ukraine would thus remain a neutral zone, dominated by neither the West nor Russia. Putin seemed to accept this, perhaps unwillingly, but it avoided open war. In 2019, Zelensky was elected president of Ukraine, a former actor with a large personality. He encouraged closer ties to the West. Zelensky had continued the tradition of corruption, so common in most European countries and so lucrative to Western politicians. When Biden took office in 2020, a new dynamic came into play because the Biden administration was eager to strengthen ties to Ukraine, a reversal of the Trump policy of neutrality. When the United States, under Biden's team, withdrew all forces from Afghanistan in a humiliating manner, leaving tens of billions of dollars of military hardware behind, Putin saw his opportunity. It seemed evident to all that Biden was a paper tiger who enjoyed political posturing but had no heart for fighting. The withdrawal of all United States forces from Afghanistan had many implications in Asia. While this obviously was great for the Taliban thugs who took command of the capital city of Kabul, it was also good news for China, which borders Afghanistan. China had been cultivating a relationship with the Taliban, hoping that they could extend their influence deeper into Central Asia should America retreat. This has now occurred. Additionally, it was literally a flashing green light to Putin to act decisively in Ukraine for the United States military was being led by inept Biden, who now dominated the Pentagon. So, in February of 22, Putin invaded Ukraine. Analysis regarding the United States' involvement in Ukraine. Above all, do not forget the geography. It is a reality that no one can change in the slightest, and upon such real-world facts, all political and military players must take their chances. Ukraine is far from America, very far, 
It is on the other side of the Atlantic, beyond Western Europe, beyond Central Europe. It is on the distant edge of Eastern Europe. Indeed, the eastern portion of Ukraine, where the fighting is occurring, is more of a Central Asian region rather than anything else. Meanwhile, Ukraine is right on Russia's front porch, or perhaps from the Russian point of view, it's in the living room. For both Ukraine and Russia, this war is existential. That is, their very existence depends on a favorable outcome. Thus, their commitment is total. But this war is not existential for us. No matter the outcome, most aspects of American life will remain the same, simply because it's so far away from us. Next, do not forget the long and tangled relationship between these two peoples. They are so closely related to one another that they look the same, have the same political customs and traditions, speak languages that are indistinguishable to most listeners, share much of the same history, and claim the same land. Yet, they bitterly distrust one another. How are people like us, who live on the other side of the planet, supposed to understand their problems well enough to say one side is right and the other is wrong? And yet, we are so confident in our assessment of the situation that we are willing to jump into the middle of it. It's extremely naive to think that we can solve this problem. Indeed, it's my contention that the leaders of the United States, Biden, and company are aiding Ukraine not so much because they want to solve any problems or end the war, but for their own reasons. Reasons we will explore. Question. Does the United States have vital national interest in Ukraine? No. Don't let anyone persuade you otherwise. We have far fewer sensible reasons to send weapons or combat troops to this war than we did in either Afghanistan or Iraq. Question 2. Will a Russian victory harm the United States? Very little, if at all. It will not imperil our borders, nor will it risk important economic industries upon which working Americans depend. A Russian victory will not place any of our long and faithful allies at risk. Nations that we fought shoulder to shoulder with in the past, such as England or France. Question 3. Will it embolden Russia to take another bite of Europe? Maybe, but Europe has the ability to defend itself. If we tell them they must do so without us, they are not poor nations. They can afford to spend money on weaponry if they think they might need it. But they're wiser than we. The French are not sending Ukraine any substantial quantity of war material. Neither is Germany. Neither are Spain, Great Britain, Italy. Why? Should they not be worried that if Putin wins, those rough, mean Ruskies will soon be marching on the streets of Paris, Berlin, Rome, or some other European capitals? No, they're not losing sleep over such a prospect because they know it's not plausible. Nor is it even what Putin wants. Putin craves security in his front yard, and they know this. They understand that this is reasonable, and they correctly perceive that the Russians cannot do more. Germany, France, and Britain are not at risk. The French and Germans are ready to fight in the Ukraine to the last Ukrainian soldiers and the last American rocket. Beyond that, their interest is modest, hardly more than a big yawn. Of course, little countries that are next to Ukraine or Russia are worried. Nations like Poland, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. 
but the Western European powers of Germany, France, and Great Britain have learned not to concern themselves about them, because those naive Americans can do all the worrying. Question 4. Are there international borders to defend as a point of principle? No. There are three reasons that this is not a credible argument. First, the United States has a record of invading other nations when it desires. Think of Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Grenada, and a few other places. Maybe these invasions were justified, maybe not. But the United States is hardly an upholder of high principles when it comes to respecting international borders of other nations. Second, we have our own internal border problems with Mexico. Why should any American be in favor of defending the border of Ukraine from Russia when we do nothing to protect our own southern border from hordes of foreign people from Central America? Third, from the European perspective, they learned much from World War II. Take England, for example. They guaranteed to protect the integrity of the Polish border in 1939. Six years later, what did they get for their principled stand to defend the border of another nation? A demolished empire and an utterly ruined economy. The British have still not completely recovered. It's a pretty clear that they are not about to make the same mistake twice. Question 5. Will letting Russia overtake part of the Ukraine embolden China to grab Taiwan? Indeed, this is an astute and worthy line of inquiry, for it shows that the great powers of the earth are playing a complex global game that requires strategic, long-term thinking. Unfortunately, the Biden administration, by withdrawing in such an idiotic manner from Afghanistan, has shown that they are incapable of strategic thinking, long-term thinking, or quite possible any rational thought of any kind. Instead, they're more concerned that American combat soldiers are well-versed in transsexual ideology, and that our diplomats are flying the homosexual rainbow flag at our international embassies. Fighting and actually winning wars? Biden's people are convinced that those manly skills are no longer important. So the answer to the question is this. It is too late to be tough with China. The Chinese communists are hard-nosed realists who can see that the longer Biden remains in office, the more America's fighting spirit will be eroded. Thus, their goal is to re-elect Biden and other similar soft-headed politicians until the American ability to resist is an aggressive move against Taiwan is completely degraded. Question 6. Why then are we risking so much in Ukraine? The answer is less a grand conspiracy of brilliant but evil sinister personalities and more a collusion of self-interest by those who care only for themselves. In describing this collusion, I will begin with most craven interests and probably the most short-sighted. Foremost, we're aiding the Ukrainian government because many American politicians are busy raking in money into their pockets. Ukraine has been a marvelous money laundering enterprise. The graft and corruption is too good for the Bidens, Clintons, Romneys, and others to give up. If Russia wins this war, corrupt American politicians are cut out, and the money spigot dries up. It is not that Russia is not also corrupt, 
This war is much like a massive turf struggle between two powerful cartels over who gets to milk the dry Ukrainian people. Who will take advantage of them? Next, every war means there's money to be made for the military-industrial corporations. They're always happy if there's a war somewhere that the United States government can pay for. The shameful and stupid withdrawal from Afghanistan, leaving literally billions of dollars of military hardware behind, was a shockingly good situation for them, because all of that equipment had to be replaced right away. But that opportunity has now run its course, and another war in Central Asia is lucrative for General Dynamics, Raytheon, and so forth. Their lobbyists in Washington, D.C. remain active, trying to goad American politicians into sticking their American thumb into conflicts around the world in the hopes that such meddling will draw us into another lovely, lengthy, faraway war. Third, those who want to advance a vision of the one world government see this as a step in the right direction. It provides the United Nations and other advocates of one world government a bully pulpit to press their theory that if nations around the world would give up their sovereignty to the globalist crowd, these wars would not occur. After all, they argue if there are no more nations, how can two no nations go to war with each other? Peace, they insist, will break out everywhere if only everybody would give up their old-fashioned notions about patriotism and place all power in their hands. Last, and I'm sad to assert this thought, but many American politicians and Pentagon generals enjoy the prestige associated with the United States being at war in faraway places. Throwing our weight around, the generals and admirals get to show off our powerful weaponry and our long military reach. Wars provide opportunities for promotion. Battles create the chance for winners and heroes to bask in the limelight. I know that a great many American politicians and military officers do not think like this, but I'm equally confident that some do. And it seems the loftier the rank, the more prone they are to succumb to this aggrandizing frame of mind. So who are the losers in the Ukrainian war? Whoever is at ground zero, where the war is fought, these are the losers. Thus, the Ukrainian and Russian people who live there are in the process of having their lives cut short, their homes and towns pulverized, and seeds of bitterness sown that will bear poisonous fruit for decades. Their lives will never be the same, no matter who wins. The American taxpayer loses once again. Our hard-earned tax money is transferred in the accounts of corrupt politicians and greedy CEOs of corporations that produce military weaponry. American patriots are losers. The political result of this war is one more step toward the erosion of American national sovereignty. So who will win this war? Of course, that depends on how one defines winning. The longer the war lasts, the more likely it is that Russia will achieve at least some of her war aims. Putin will likely gain some territory and retain it for a long time, even if he does not get all he hoped for originally. This struggle has become a war of attrition, which is something that Russia has proven herself to be excellent at in previous conflicts fought in Eastern Europe. Ukraine is almost entirely dependent on Western support. If that support were going to evolve American, British, French, or German ground troops, it would have happened already. The attention span of the West is limited. Soon, public support for the war in the United States will slip. 
that is very bad news for Ukrainians, for they cannot go on without a great deal of assistance. If the war continues, Ukraine will be forced to seek terms and give up land, or carry on and run the risk of losing even more territory than they already have. If by winning one means that the Ukrainians have taken back all the ground that the Russians have seized, it's very unlikely that Ukraine can win. In any event, this war will not end the tensions between Russians and Ukrainians. Their distrust and hatred for one another will last well into the next century. It's a pity that such is the case, but that is one certainty that everyone should acknowledge. Long after the craven and selfish political leaders who blundered their way into this bloody mess have turned to dust under their elaborate tombstones, generations yet unborn will still be picking up the pieces and trying to find a better pathway forward.